have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That was our epistle reading this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. You don't have a Bible. There are some in the back over there. They are white and yellow. And let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear our prayers. Grant that in this congregation, in the church of the resurrection, the pure word of God may be preached and the sacraments duly administered. Strengthen and confirm the faithful. Protect and guide the children. Visit and relieve the sick. Turn and soften the wicked, arouse the careless, recover the fallen, restore the penitent, remove all hindrances to the advancement of your truth, and bring us all to be of one heart and mind within your holy church, to the honor and glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This upcoming Wednesday is a significant day on the church's yearly calendar. It's not only Halloween, a time of spooky fun and sugar. It is also going to be All Saints Day this upcoming week. That is a day that reminds us of those faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us, who even now are in Christ, and whose heavenly worship we mirror and participate in here on earth, and with whom we hope to be raised on the last day. And this upcoming Tuesday is the 506th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 Theses, to the castle door in Wittenberg, Germany, which was a watershed moment in the history of the Protestant Reformation. The juxtaposition of those two days starkly epitomizes the reformed and Catholic character of Anglicanism, that we are heirs to a legacy of small c, Catholic, universal Christian faith and practice, as received under the primary authority of the word of God and Holy Scripture. This came home for me while I was in England in 2017. I, uh, was, vis got, I was visiting England as, as a doctoral student and got to visit two remarkable cathedrals at the Abbey at Bath, um, a building that's about 500 years old. On the wall, there's a list of the abbots and abbesses going back to the sixth century, this kind of unbroken chain of people who have been worshiping the same God in that place that full time. Brothers and sisters have stood there confessing the same creed, praying the Lord's Prayer, singing the Psalms, and following Christ for millennia before us. In 2013, there was some problems at the cathedral because there are so many people buried underneath it from hundreds of years ago that there was air bubbles coming up under the building. They had to do a, a massive, expensive project to reassure the foundation of the church. So when you're in the church, there's a walk-in crypt you're above. So as you kneel to confess your sins, as you kneel to pray, around you, you see the names and dates of people who, went, who lived before you 400 years ago, 500 years ago. You are put in your place in a very real sense that we are a rising vapor. We are like the, the fog outside this morning, that our lives are here for but a moment and then are gone but we are also part of this unbroken and eternal and transcendent chain of those who worship the one God of Israel 
in Jesus Christ. Later, I had the chance to go to Oxford, England, and on Broad Street, there's a single cross made of the cobblestones in a certain spot. That is where the Anglican Protestant reformers, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Archbishop Thomas Cranmer were martyred for their convictions. Nearby, inside of the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin, itself a historic and beautiful church, there's a memorial on the wall to the martyrs of the Reformation, both Roman Catholic and Protestant, who died in Oxford in the 16th and 17th centuries. And in both of these places, I was overwhelmed by the weightiness of what it means to belong to the Church of Jesus Christ. I felt a deep affection and longing for the church scattered around the world in diverse languages, ethnicities, classes, and more. I wanted to be joined with those who have gone before us to embrace those who will come after us in Christ and to make the faith my own today. I also felt deep sorrow over my own failings, my own personal sins, and that the church has been divided, that we've even committed acts of violence against one another, where there should be love and the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But especially on Broad Street, especially contemplating the martyrdom of, of Thomas Cranmer and others who, who was instrumental in making our prayer book, it brought a deep sense of clarity about what really matters. Immediately before me was not only a tangible reminder that following Christ can be costly, but also that it is something real, something of weight, something of gravity. So much of our lives today are trivial things that are here today and gone tomorrow. This faith is something worth dying for, that spot screamed to me. I thank God for the relative prosperity and freedom we know in our time and place here. But amidst all of our comfort, we can easily get confused and think our faith is something cheap, something convenient, something comfortable. In the life of the church today, there's a lot of confusion and triviality. Confusion, where the spirit of the age, whether progressive or conservative, where sentimentality, where celebrity, where consumeristic pragmatism create forms of Christian life that are unserious. As Richard Niebuhr put it in the 20th century, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. But Isaiah 40, verse 8, says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Or as Paul put it in 2 Timothy, the word of God is not bound. So as we look today at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we, we get a compelling vision of what Christian ministry really is. The central claim of this sermon today, the thing that I'm trying to communicate, comes from verse 8 of this passage. Namely, that Christian ministry, ministry that is actually worthy of the adjective Christian, centrally concerns proclaiming the word of God in the transformative sharing of our lives, communing with one another as we pursue Christ together. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you look with me at verses 1 through 2, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. 
If you look down at verse 13, notice how Paul talks about the word of God. He, he goes on to say, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. What is it? The word of God, which is at work in you believers. Jesus Christ himself is the word of God. We hear in the beginning of John's gospel that the word was with God in the beginning, that all things were created through him and for him, but that the word of God became flesh in Jesus Christ, which we will celebrate at Christmas in a few months' time. In Hebrews chapter 1, we hear that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The language in which God has communicated to us is the person of Jesus Christ himself. This is a word that must be proclaimed. In Romans chapter 10, Paul goes on to talk about how faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of God in Hebrews chapter 4 is described as a sharp, double-edged sword, living and active. It slays and makes alive. And throughout the church's history, there's long been a, there's a long tradition, especially of associating preaching with the word of God. At the time of the Reformation, there was a, a confession of faith, the second Helvetic confession of 1566. And it says that when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful, and that neither any other word of God is to be invented nor is to be expected from heaven, and that now the word itself which is preached is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches. For even if he, me, even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless, the word of God remains still true and good. In our Anglican confessional heritage, in the 39 articles, it goes on to talk about how the efficacy, that the effectiveness of the word of God in the sacraments doesn't depend on the person administering it, because we will all be sinners, anyone who might try to act in any form of Christian ministry, whether ordained or as a layperson sharing the gospel with someone else. God is present in his word, and God himself makes his word effective. And at the time of the Reformation, the, the great discovery of Martin Luther and John Calvin was not that we should do away with all history and all tradition and just only go back to the Bible and invent something new. They sought to recover the faith of the early church, wherein the word of God is our primary authority. When you read the preface to the Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer talks about this, that he was trying to recover an early Christian form of worship and common life, where the word of God forms and shapes us as the primary authority in our lives. And Karl Barth in the 20th century was one of the foremost uh, people who has written about the word of God. And he indicates that the word to which the church listens must always be the word of God. It does so as the church, which is marked by all that has existed and occurred before us in Christian history. But we must be radically prepared for the fact that today, tomorrow, and the day after, the word of God must be that which enlightens us, illumines us, in which all is assessed and weighed. It slays and makes alive. So in our psalm reading this morning, what we said responsively to one another is that the one who is blessed is the one who lives by the word of God, who treasures the word of God. The person who, in who, who has been 
given life by the word of God is not like the wheat or the chaff that the wind blows away, but like a tree by streams of water planted with roots that endure, that bears fruit in its time. And in the fourth century, Gregory of Nyssa wrote about this by, he wrote about Psalm 1 as giving us a clue to all of the Psalms, that the word of God guides us towards true blessedness. Paul had written in the New Testament that God alone is blessed forever. And for Gregory in the fourth century, the Psalms, therefore, were a guide to pursuing blessedness, likeness to God, likeness to the God who is forever blessed. And it comes through his word being at work in our lives. And notice, as Paul wrote in verse 2, that this comes amidst, amidst conflict and opposition. What preaching is not is mere entertainment. It's not mere instruction alone. It's not pre- a sermon is not a TED Talk. It is not a classroom lecture from a university. It's not advice. It's not therapy. All of those are good things. But a sermon is the time and place when God speaks through his word, through those who have been called and appointed to that task. And so Paul goes on to t- describe what, that, what the fullness of this consists of, if you look with me at verses 3 through 6. For, he writes in verse 3, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So if Christian ministry first consists of preaching the word of God, second, there's a certain form of life that is necessary to such preaching. Personal integrity is required. As Paul writes to set to the, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he uses very similar language. So my pages stick together in my Bible. He says in chapter 4, Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by this open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, speaking of the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is what Christian ministry consists of. It it is the word of God, which spoke all things into existence. When there was nothing, God spoke and all things came into being. In Romans 4, Paul talks about how God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence those things which do not exist. That has happened in Jesus Christ in our hearts. And there's a form of life that's necessary. There's personal integrity required and that's, that is the essence of what it means to be a Christian minister. If you read the pastoral epistles, if you read First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul is giving instructions to his, his heirs, those who are, who are going to come after him. And he has a lot to say. Almost the main thing he talks about is the kind of life that a leader in the church needs to have. He does not mainly talk about how much fundraising can this person do. 
He does not mainly talk about how popular, how rich is this person? How good looking are they? How, how well will they rank on a consultant firm's likability chart or graph or something like that? The main thing he says is they need to be like Jesus Christ. They need to have integrity. They need to be above reproach. They need to be disciplined, not given to anger, not given to greed, knowing the word of God, managing their own household with honor. Not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but someone who is following Christ and is, and is not living a duplicitous life. All of us probably have had experiences in church where a leader let us down in some way or another, whether minor or very significant. What Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2 is that the essence of ministry ultimately, though, must be seeking to please God for the good of the church. Where there is error, where there is abuse, it should be reformed. But the heart and driving concern is to please God. Paul wrote there that he sought not to please people in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says in Galatians, if I were seeking to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Seeking glory from people corrupts Christian ministry easily. It is shepherding souls, Paul says in 1 Peter 5. It is being an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. Notice how Paul talks about the tenderness that's required. This is the third thing on Christian ministry we learn from Paul here. It involves gentleness and nurture. Verse 7, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Look also at, at verse 11. You know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul describes Christian ministry as involving motherliness, fatherliness. In, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul likens himself to a mother again. He, he says that he's suffering the pains of childbirth, that Christ would be formed in the church. There's a very long tradition in the church, going back to the church fathers such as Cyprian, that is echoed by reformers such as John Calvin, that refer to the church as mother. Calvin writes in his institutes, I will begin with the church, into whose bosom God is pleased to collect his children. Not only that by her aid and ministry they be, may be nourished, so long as they are babes and children, but may also be guided by her maternal care until they grow up into manhood and finally attain to the perfection of faith. What God is thus joined, let not man put asunder. To those to whom he is a father, the church must also be a mother. This was true not merely under the law, but even now after the advent of Christ, since Paul declares that we are children of a new, even a heavenly Jerusalem in Galatians chapter 4. Gentleness. Meekness. These are difficult virtues to cultivate, and they are the heart of Christian ministry, which is caring for souls, not making a name for yourself, not creating a platform for yourself. There's a reason why when deacons are ordained, as I was this summer, they begin prostrate on the ground. It is, it is a calling to serve. It is a calling to share in Christ, who before his death, 
knelt down and washed the feet of his disciples, taking a place of shame and service and lowliness, and rising and saying, do you understand what I've done? If I have so done as your Lord and Master, so you must do likewise in loving one another. Paul wants the church to grow up into maturity and into faith. And this is something that is going to become increasingly important for us in our day and age. In all ages, growth into Christian maturity is important. But as the church faces increasing forces of secularism, as it becomes harder to be a church that stands under the authority of the word of God, we need to be deeply formed. We will find out what kind of roots we have if we are like Psalm 1 and deeply planted by a streams of water or if we are chaff that wind will blow away. Why is church worth getting out of bed for on Sunday morning? Why bother with this? Why go through the effort, the, the challenge, the difficulty of sharing life with other people, none of whom are perfect? It is because God has called us to this. Not just any God, a God of greatness and glory who has declared his word of life over us. We who were dead in our sin, God has spoken and said, live. Preaching the word of God is the act that Ezekiel talks about as giving life to the dead. In Ezekiel chapter 37, there's a vision given of a valley of dry bones, which is Israel in exile. And the word of God comes and, and gives life to them, this picture of resurrection. And that is what the word of God does in our lives. Not just once when we become a Christian, when we become baptized, again and again and again, we, the word of God must give us life as we come to him. But it's not merely an act of hearing as individuals. It is in the church that we have life. Notice the tenderness of verse 8 affectionately desirous of you, is how Paul describes the church to himself. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. If the gospel has truly gripped our lives, if Christ has made us his own, we not only share information with one another, we share our lives with one another. Christ is in us, and Christ is being shared amongst the people who are the body of Christ. This week, I, in, it, well, partly while I was working on this sermon, I went to a certain coffee shop inside of a certain Bible church, and there was a group there of about seven to eight or so people who came in with five or so caregivers. The, the people all had some form of signi fairly significant physical or intellectual disability. The caregivers were all wearing scrubs. This was clearly a kind of um, group that was having an outing in public, and they, they sat down a little bit, uh, sat down fairly close to me, and there were a lot of people there studying, meeting, doing various kinds of busy things, and this group was very raucous, very loud, very active, moving around a lot, and I thought it was great, but I was also trying to get some work done, so it was, it was a little bit of a, not sure what to think of this, and at one point, one, one, one person in their group whose name was I won't share his name, uh, but he, he ran up and pulled my glasses off and looked through them. And the caregivers 
were really apologetic, began, began to apologize. I had on my deacon collar because I was meeting with someone earlier that day. So anytime, that I, I, ha I don't wear that every day, but when I do, I feel very conscious that I need to be on my best behavior. And uh, so... But it made me so deeply emotional, I almost started crying, uh, and just said, I'm so glad y'all are here. I am so thankful your group is here and that we got to share this moment together. And as I sat back down and put my glasses on that he had just looked through, I was looking at this passage through them and I'm trying to imagine, I'm not sure if this, this certain person would be able to read the passage or not, what, what he might see in it um, from, from where he is, from how he experiences the world. And I felt this deep desire to share my life with them. That Christ has not just given information for smart people to think about. Christ has given himself for the life of the world, to the great and to the weak. Paul tells the first, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, not many of you were impressive. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you are well-born. But God has chosen the lowly and weak things of this world to display his wisdom and power in specifically giving us a crucified Messiah, one despised, one shamed, and that is with whom we have been enjoined. All of this collides in our gospel reading from today where Jesus has asked what the greatest commandment is. And his answer is from Deuteronomy chapter six, to love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, not part of your life, the whole, every last corner of your life is to be filled with an unending love for God supremely above all else and love your neighbor as yourself. That is something that none of us can do on our own. There's a reason our worship service begins with that every single week. We are reminded of what God has asked of us what is, what is your purpose in life? What are we supposed to do with our lives? To love God and to love our neighbor. And we fail and we don't. And that is why every week we confess our sins together. Our Lord taught us to regularly confess our sins in the Lord's prayer, which we will pray together in a moment. But our hope comes in what followed in Matthew chapter 22, that Jesus is the offspring of David. If you're wondering what Paul's gospel is, as we draw our time to a close, if you're looking at 1 Thessalonians 2 and you think, well, this doesn't really tell me what the gospel is or what Paul wrote about it, he makes it really clear in the first verses of Romans where he writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, here it comes, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. The gospel is mainly about Jesus. It's a message, it's news, it's a heralding, not just a suggestion of some tips you can pick up to maximize yourself. It is an announcement of what God has done in Christ. Concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, both David's son and David's Lord, as Jesus says in Matthew 22, quoting Psalm 110. Concerning his son, the gospel is, descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace. Where do we find grace when we have failed to love God and love our neighbors? In David's son, in David's Lord. 
by his resurrection from the dead, that we are joined with him, that we have triumphed over the grave in Christ already, and we hope that his resurrection will be revealed in our lives in time to come. I want to conclude by praying over you the collect for this upcoming All Saints Day that, that brings all of this to a head, that brings together how the word of God should shape our lives as we share in the life of faith, joined with those who have gone before us and will come after us. Let us pray. O oh, almighty God, who hast knit together thine elect in one communion and fellowship, in the mystical body of thy son, Christ our Lord, grant us grace so to follow thy blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that we may come to those unspeakable joys which thou hast prepared for them that unfeignedly love thee through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Mm -hmm.